You are listening to the Addiction Support Podcast, episode number 20. Hi, Oak Creek Wellness family. Welcome to Addiction Support Podcast, where I talk with inspiring people who share their knowledge and experience of addiction and what's working for them. This is addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. I'm your host, Melissa Sue Tucker. So that's, that's kind of the basic understanding of what harm reduction is. It's meeting people where they're at. This week, I'm really excited to share information with uh, a friend of mine, Haley. Haley is doing amazing work, especially here in Phoenix, but I think across the nation with harm reduction. So if you're not familiar with harm reduction, she goes into what that is. We talk about needle exchanges and why they're important. We're working together on a political level here in Phoenix to get some stuff done, but she just shares a lot of information. So whether you are somebody specifically around heroin or any type of opioids, this is a podcast that you want to listen to and share with other people that might be going through it. Um, We talk about... Everything from ODs, how to prevent them, how to identify them, what to do if that were to happen. She just has a big heart. She definitely is able to practice detaching with love and really having no judgment on people and seeing people as people. So listen to her share our stories. And if you have any questions or want to follow up, you can head on back to Addiction Support Podcast. Just contact me there. Or you know what? You can always contact me on Twitter. That's a really fast way to get a hold of me if you have any questions or want to message me. So I'm at Melissa S. Tucker on Twitter. Anyway, enjoy. I hope this episode's beneficial to you. Head on back to the show notes. I'm going to have, I haven't created them yet as of this recording, but I'm going to have some information for you guys to download. So you can go on back to addictionsupportpodcast.com forward slash episode 20. Encouraging, inspirational, and life-changing content that makes a difference. Created specifically for you by OakCreekWellness.com. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Let's go ahead and jump in. Why don't you explain what harm reduction is and what you're doing around that? Sure. So harm reduction is a set of practical strategies and principles that's based around meeting people where they're at. Oftentimes we're talking about people who are uh, in the midst of substance use disorder, uh, oftentimes participating in high-risk behaviors. So a lot of times we're talking about drug injectors. uh, And how do we intervene to reduce risky behavior without forcing them to do something that they can't do, like get sober? Uh, the, The tenant that most people are familiar with is needle exchange programs. So needle exchange programs meet people where they're at, people who are injecting drugs. Uh, Needle exchange programs do not go to those folks and say, hey, you're injecting drugs, you're at risk for HIV, you really ought to get off the drugs. Uh, Because everybody else is telling them that. We know that that's not possible for a lot of people in that moment. A lot of people can't or don't want to quit injecting. So what can we do right now to reduce your risk so that in the future, You don't have to worry about an HIV infection, a hepatitis C infection, losing a limb due to an abscess um, when you were in the middle of something that was hard for you to deal with. So that's, that's kind of the basic understanding of what harm reduction is. It's meeting people where they're at. 
So I know um, right now we were talking, we're in Arizona, and so Arizona, we're a little bit limited around what we can do. Unfortunately, hopefully that will change in the near future. Can you share some information, what's going on in other states, and any examples that you've seen where harm reductions really helped someone? Sure. So in the 80s, at the height of the HIV crisis, uh, when we were just seeing people drop dead left and right of uh, AIDS-related issues, um, needle exchange programs started forming in the U.S. And I think in the 70s, needle exchange programs started forming abroad in Europe uh, and in other places. Um, So the first needle exchange programs in the States were in Tacoma, Washington, and in Boston, Massachusetts. And it was groups of uh, activists, former users, people who uh, had friends and family members who were injection drug users who saw that it would be so easy to prevent the spread of HIV if people were able to have the equipment that they needed. Not providing somebody with needles doesn't mean they don't inject. It just means they use somebody else's needle. Uh, so since, and that was in the late 80s that that started in the United States. And since then, it's just snowballed throughout the country. Uh, there are many, many states, many cities, many counties who have sanctioned and paid for needle exchange programs that operate. Uh, Needle exchange has gone beyond just being an HIV prevention strategy. Uh, It's also, like I mentioned, hepatitis C prevention. Hepatitis C is primarily spread uh, through needle sharing as it's blood-to-blood contact. Uh, Abscesses, wounds, ER recidivism. It's also an amazing opportunity for people who um, are marginalized and made very vulnerable by their drug use to have access to referrals. So a lot of times drug users don't know where to go for help. They don't know who to ask for help. They might ask somebody who only gives them one method um, of how to get off drugs where that might not be an appropriate method for that individual. So outreach workers at needle exchange programs through using the harm reduction tactic of gauging what does this person want? What's realistic for this person? What can I offer them that they will be receptive to um, can offer these referrals? So a lot of times referrals are made to detoxes, to inpatient, to outpatient, sometimes to primary care. A lot of times um, a person is using because they have pain issues. They have legitimate pain issues. So if that person's able to get their pain managed through primary care, through a pain specialist, sometimes their drug use can taper off. Sometimes it's a a mental health issue. Once the mental health issue can be addressed, the drug use can taper off. If it's a housing issue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So outreach workers at harm reduction programs can provide uh, a non-coercive, non-judgmental space for individuals to ask for help beyond just the needle. This is coming up for me, and I never even thought about this before. Parents should probably talk to their kids about what to do if they find a needle and show them, I would assume, on, an, on the internet what needles look like. And like, what do people do if they get stuck? Can we talk about that? Being stuck by a needle is scary. It's a scary thing that can happen. Um, A lot of people who work in the health field can get stuck by needles. Law enforcement can get stuck by needles. Uh, Trash disposal workers can get stuck by needles. Uh, It's it's really not a frequent event that needles are thrown in parks, although, you know, that happens occasionally and people uh, are very concerned about it and it is a concerning issue. Fortunately, it, it doesn't seem to be too common. Um, 
I used to work for a needle exchange program in Washington State, and occasionally we would do community cleanup. Um, we had stick, like needle stick resistant gloves. Um, we had tongs. We had a sharps container. Uh, we would be safe about when we picked it up. We'd pick it up by the opposite end of the barrel. Um, in the state of Arizona, unfortunately, there's really nowhere that people can take used needles to drop them off for free. Occasionally, a hospital might let you drop them off there. Uh, other times, they won't. And especially people who are using needles consistently, who need a safe place to dispose of them, who maybe can't pay for it. Uh, if you call the state and you ask them, what should I do with these needles I found? They'll tell you, put it in a laundry detergent bottle, tape up the lid, write biohazard on it, and stick it in the trash. So it's a big issue in Arizona that we don't have a safe place to dispose of needles and, and needle exchange programs throughout the country offer their communities a safe place to dispose of needles. So whether it's a needle that you use to inject drugs, a needle that your grandma used to inject her insulin, a needle that you found in your backyard, uh, they offer opportunities for people to dispose of them. Uh, there is a medication called post-exposure prophylaxis um, or PEP, and it's a medication that can be taken immediately after being potentially exposed to HIV. So uh, these days when somebody is stuck by a needle unintentionally, uh, they will often do PEP and it's a 30-day process um, of taking medication every day. Um, and that protects hugely against HIV. So there, there are options if somebody's stuck accidentally by a needle. Uh, at this point, there's nothing that protects against hepatitis C. But for HIV, people are covered. The other thing I wanted to bring up was a couple weeks ago, we were talking about what to do if somebody ODs. And so I know that you know we're talking to everybody across the world. We have listeners in Europe and Australia and different places like that, but in the U.S. and specifically Arizona, can we talk about what what to do if somebody were to OD and we were around them? Yeah, so uh, this is a big question that's been coming up throughout the country for the past few years. Um, again, harm reduction, meeting people where they're at. We can't say to somebody, you're injecting drugs, it's risky, you might overdose, you should stop. People know that. People know that it's risky. Uh, people have reasons that are legitimate to them for using the drugs, uh, whether we agree with it or not. So overdose is a, is a real risk uh, as heroin is increasing, heroin use is increasing, prescription drug, prescription opiate use is increasing. Um, we're seeing the sharpest rise in overdose fatalities we've ever seen in the country and in Arizona. Uh, so there are practical strategies to reduce overdose fatalities. One thing is, is preventing folks um, from overdosing in the first place. How do we educate you? Yes, you're still going to use. Uh, how do we teach you um, to prevent an overdose from happening? So some strategies are if you've been abstinent for a day or a week or a month or a year because you tried to quit, you went to detox, you went to rehab, you went to jail, you were sick in the hospital, if you start using again, your body can't handle what it used to handle. Your tolerance has decreased. Um, so if you choose to use, you have to do a tester. You have to see how it affects your body. If the substance looks different than it normally looks, chances are it's cut with something different. It could be very strong. Um, if you're getting it from a new source, you don't know what it's cut with. And that's a big issue. Um, in the past year or two, a lot of heroin has been cut with fentanyl. 
Um, and fentanyl is one of the strongest opioid medications. It's extremely slow release. Um, so it, uh, it lasts in a person's body for a very, very long time. And people are literally dropping um, like flies because their heroin is cut with fentanyl and they don't know it. So these prevention messages to people who are using um, is really important to, to keep an overdose from occurring in the first place. Um, if an overdose does occur, uh, there's a medication called naloxone that's been used for... 30 or 40 years in the U.S. by EMTs and by uh, hospital staff. It's an opiate antagonist, so it is um, heavier than the opiate is um, in the brain. So it knocks the opiate off of the opiate receptor site, um, restoring the person's breathing immediately within one minute or less. Uh, And since 1996... Uh, There have been some community-based programs, these are needle exchange programs in the country, who have been distributing naloxone to uh, their participants, to their clients, um, and they've been successfully using it to save each other from um, dying of an overdose. Uh, there's now a lot of traction as we've seen overdose deaths increase. Uh, we've seen more and more states embracing layperson access to naloxone. It's a medication that's extremely easy to administer. It either uh, is sprayed up the nose or injected into the muscle. It has no adverse side effects. If a person doesn't have opiates in their system, it doesn't do anything to them. If they do have opiates in their system, it makes them go through withdrawals, which is not dangerous oftentimes. It's just uncomfortable. Um, You can't overdose on naloxone. There's no incentive to abuse it because all it does is make you uncomfortable. Um, There have also been studies done that show that having naloxone available does not make people feel safer using drugs, that oftentimes people's drug use decreases knowing that there's somebody out there who cares enough to administer naloxone if they had an overdose. Um, So Arizona is now one state out of seven in the U.S. that does not have layperson access to naloxone. However, we have a bill that uh, is making its way through the state legislature. It really looks like it's going to pass, so um, hopefully we'll soon start addressing the issue that's really plaguing Arizona. Um, But it's really important to have this medication in the hands of people who are actually going to witness an overdose. Um, So... From 1996 to 2014, community-based programs experienced uh, over 25,000 overdose reversals using layperson naloxone, and 90% of those reversals were performed by fellow drug users. So it's really important that we have naloxone in schools, that we have it in parents' medicine cabinets, that we have it in uh, homeless shelters, but the most effective way to save somebody's life is making sure that drug users have access to it so that they can save each other because they're around each other um, and they're most likely to witness an overdose. And I'm going to say this, um, this is not Haley saying this, but if you're in a state that doesn't have not even sure what it's called. If it's illegal for somebody to overdose in your state, or it's you're in a state where somebody could you could potentially be arrested for calling the police if you're in the presence of somebody that was doing drugs and overdose, you don't want to call the police and say that somebody you think somebody just overdosed, but you do want to call nine one one and you do want to say send the paramedics because this person that I'm with just stopped breathing, and so you definitely want to get somebody's help. If God forbid you're in a situation where somebody does overdose, please don't just leave them or anything like that. Um, but be smart about it and take care of yourself as well. 
Can you share the story of the gentleman that you worked with up in Washington? Yeah. Okay. As I mentioned, I worked for a needle exchange program for two years in Washington State. I really saw uh, harm reduction work with a gentleman um, named Bryce, who was one of our participants. He was chronically homeless. Uh, he was a drug injector. He had um, persistent mental illness. And he was uh, he had ulcerated wounds in his legs that he uh, they wouldn't heal because he kept injecting into them. Um, even if he took a break from injecting into them, they wouldn't have healed because he didn't have anywhere to clean them. Um, his legs were always covered because he was out in the cold. There was no opportunity for them to heal. Um, and this is a case that a lot of people would label as, as hopeless. A lot of people had given up on him. His family stopped talking to him. Even a lot of his friends were fed up with him uh, because they saw him not taking care of himself. We were in a position to, uh, we weren't there to judge him. We were there to support him in making any positive change. So if he told us that he was injecting in his legs uh, one less time per week, that was a positive change. And for somebody who had gone through what he'd been through and was living the life he was living, that was a measurable uh, change for him that was really, really positive. Uh, so we were able to support him in... Uh, very small endeavors like this. Uh, but he wasn't interested in treatment. He wasn't interested in having his legs looked at. Uh, he really wasn't interested in overall stopping injecting into his legs. Certainly wasn't interested in health insurance, which we were able to offer to him for free. Um, and over the years, uh, through the relationships that we formed one day out of nowhere, he said that he was ready to, uh, get, health insurance and that he wanted to get on methadone and that he wanted to have his legs looked at. Um, and this was the culmination of years of meeting him where he was at, um, using techniques to find out what were his motivations, uh, what's important to him, what changes are tangible for him right now. And he trusted us uh, because we accepted him and we weren't coercive and we weren't judgmental. So that day we signed him up for health insurance. We walked him into the methadone clinic, got him signed up. A week later, he went to urgent care um, and had his legs looked at. That was a little bit harder. He was really resistant to uh, having his legs looked at. Um, but he was able to finally get the health care that he needed. Um, and since then, he hasn't been injecting and he's still alive. A lot of us thought that he would be dead by now. Um, but getting off of heroin um, and being able to go to the doctor, uh, I think has... Con contributed to him still being alive. Um, and we couldn't have done that if we weren't there as a needle exchange program to support him. I'm sure he would have been dead by now. So you are an incredible inspiration for how to live with un like giving unconditional love. Like I've been inspired every time I talk to you, every time I meet you, that's my impression. What advice do you have for family members that love someone who is in the middle of their addiction? Like how can they be more unconditional and loving and still take care of themselves with, with all of this? So this is a tough question. Um, I haven't been in the situation of, uh, of being a family member of somebody who struggled with addiction. You know, I know from evidence-based studies, it's shown that when a person who's struggling with substance use disorder feels supported by the people around them, they're able to be honest when they have a relapse. I say when they have a relapse, not if they have a relapse, because relapse happens. Um, it can make a world of difference in terms of how long does the relapse last? Uh, what kind of risks are they putting themselves through? Um, my experience as 
a public health outreach worker, it's been a lot easier to be detached than it would be, I think, if I were a family member. Um, but I don't know. There are a lot of support groups that uh, that don't emphasize uh, hitting rock bottom. That works for some people. It doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, I know for me, you know, if I'm feeling depressed and everything's crashing down around me, I'm not going to be motivated to get up and make some sort of positive change. I want to, you know, it's going to be really hard when I don't have the support. Um, so I think supporting people, supporting our loved ones, no matter where they're at, letting them know, hey, we understand this is a cycle. There's going to be relapses. There's going to be lapses. Um, how do we minimize the damage you know, if somebody is using, their family members, their friends should know so that their friends and family members can respond appropriately in case there is something like an overdose that's occurring. Yeah, I think I think it's a really tough question, but I just look at uh, evidence-based practices and evidence shows us that um, encouraging our loved ones to hit rock bottom doesn't help and it actually causes a lot more damage. Thank you. Do you have um, a website or a way that people can either contribute to the work that you're doing or connect with you if they have any questions? Yes. So we have a website uh, that is specific to the harm reduction education that we do here in Arizona. Uh, The organization I'm with is called Sonoran Prevention Works. Uh, Our website is www.spwaz.org. Uh, It's specific to Arizona. There are a few organizations that are national that I'm really inspired by. One of them is uh, Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, They have, um, they do incredible work around harm reduction. Um, They really make it accessible to everybody in any place. Uh, Their website's harmreduction.org. I'd really encourage people to check that out and that can then link you to to other information. Um, But yeah, here in Arizona, we've got Sonoran Prevention Works doing uh, education and advocacy, um, trying to bring a a different perspective to drug abuse that is badly needed um, in an era where drug abuse is skyrocketing. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today. I really appreciate it. So I really appreciate Haley for coming on and sharing the information that she was able to share with us this week. We have a few uh, resources for you guys to download or go to the links back at the show notes. So if you go to addictionsupportpodcast.com forward slash episode 20, you'll be able to access them there. She's got a video of a family telling somebody's story. We have some information on overdosing. We have some information on what's going on here in Arizona, if that's interesting to you. And then also there's a brochure that we've linked to that I think everyone should have. At least take a look at it. If not, print it out and talk to your kids about it if you have kids uh, and and hang on to it and have it around because you could just save somebody's life. Um, the brochures offered by Narcan and they're giving the acronym SCARE ME, which is stimulation, call 911, airway, rescue breathing, evaluate, muscular injection, evaluate and support, and... Um, Let's see, there's another page here. Oh, just more information about that. Anyway, um, yeah, so the first thing, if you think somebody's overdosed, you want to stimulate them. You want to use your knuckles and like rake back and forth over their chest bone 
or like shake them a little bit, pinch their fingernails or yell and see if you can wake them up. Call 911. If they don't, uh, if the person does not respond to pain or noise, you need to call 911. If you must leave the person alone, make the call, then put in put them in the recovery position. And there's a picture of what the recovery position is. That's basically laying somebody on their side and then having their knee from their top leg kind of bent over to protect them. And the reason for this is if somebody were to throw up, um, which is common during an overdose, you don't want them to choke on their own vomit and pass away, which is also unfortunately very common. Um, when you call 911, you give an address and a location, you say the person is unconscious and not breathing. You don't have to say that any drugs were involved until the ambulance actually arrives. So there's, uh, some more information on here. I think it's all very valuable. So please download that, print it out, talk to your kids. Like I said, give it to your friends. Everybody needs to be knowing about this, um, we're losing too many people to ODs and it, this just needs to stop. Um, a little bit more information. Overdose is most common when your tolerance is down due to n- not using heroin or methadone for a while. For example, after incarceration or after a detox or a drug-free uh, drug treatment center. When drugs are mixed, that can also you know, be a higher chance of overdose, especially heroin with other downers like alcohol or benzos. And another, the other time when overdose is most common is when people are using alone and there's no one to respond if something were to happen to them. Some warning signs of a heroin overdose is when somebody cannot be woken up by noise or pain. Um, when their lips are blue or ashy or their finger fingernails are blue or ashy, Uh, if they're having slow, shallow breathing, like less than one breath every five seconds, if they're gasping, gargling, or snoring, sometimes snoring can uh, be deceiving. Obviously, we think they're actually sleeping, but if they can't be woken up, they're not sleeping. Um, And then also vomiting would be another sign of that. So come download that. I'm not... um, I'll just link to it for you guys. Once again, addictionsupportpodcast.com forward slash episode 20. Or if you go to Addiction Support Podcast, I'll be on the homepage. I'm going to wrap this up by saying one of the things that I always say, however, it's so important. If you like this show or feel like it's valuable and want other people to find it, please go to iTunes and subscribe. And we would love a review. Those things will help more people find us on iTunes, which is the biggest platform that most people listen to the podcast on. Uh, the other thing is share it. This is an important one. Please share it with everyone you know that has you know, kids that are junior high or older or anyone that you know that may be using opioid medication, either, you know, either way, legally or illegally. This is just really valuable information. We need to get this out and do our part. So as always, I love you and I appreciate you for spending your time with me this week. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Support Podcast. Addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. www.addictionsupportpodcast.com.